Good morning. My name is Rick Oates, and if you took the time, you might have read a little bit about me in the bulletin this morning. I do have a few ties, as you can see, to MPC. There's, it could go on and on and on, but I think that was enough. Um, I'm really pleased to be here, but to be perfectly honest, I'm a little bit surprised, and let me share with you why. On Easter Sunday, I was talking to Mark after worship, and he asked me if I would be willing to preach while he was away this summer. And I did, and I was really glad that he had asked me. But two days later, on April 18th, I found myself in an emergency room being told that I have cancer. The news immediately changed my life and impacted plans. Much has been changed and canceled. And trust me now, anything that I do is planned with a very tentative calendar. One question I asked myself was, how could I possibly ever preach this summer? For I was told that this year-long chemotherapy regime that I am on is as arduous as it gets. But fast forward a few months, and this chemotherapy is everything that they told me. Yet I was learning that there were a few days of normal with each session. So I left Mark a message that there was one Sunday that I anticipated that I would be able to preach, and it was this Sunday, and it was the Sunday that he actually needed help with. So I am very thankful to be here today. I guess the next 20 minutes or so will determine how thankful you are that I'm here. One other thing, out of full disclosure, I did write this sermon when I was in the hospital for five days of chemotherapy. So who knows what I actually wrote down here. So let's begin. We're going to read from 1 John, verses 1, 1 through 2, 2. That which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. There is no darkness at all. If we proclaim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks be to God. I'm going to start today with a story about a woman who decides to be a little happier. She's going to go down to the local pet shop to see if she can find a companion. She asks the store owner what animal would be the best companion, and the store owner convinces her that a parrot is the best she could find. A little expensive, but very talkative. He assured her that once the bird began to feel at home, she would have a friend for life. She paid the price and hauled the parrot home. She was full of anticipation. One week later, she has returned to the store. She's complaining that the parrot is not talking. Did you buy a mirror? The owner asked. When parrots look at themselves, words start to flow. Hoping that would help, she bought the mirror, took it home, and stuck it in the cage. Days passed of continued silence, which prompted her to return to the store and complain that her bird hadn't uttered a peep. What well, did you buy a ladder? Asked the store owner. You know, parrots need to feel comfortable, and once they go up and down that ladder a few times, I'm sure he'll begin to talk freely. She decided that was worth the extra added expense, so she put the ladder in the cage that very day. At the end of the same week, we find her back at the pet shop, Grim face, very disappointed, same complaint, no talking. Well, had you bought a swing to go in the cage? No, I haven't bought a swing, but I do have a ladder and a mirror. He talked her into a swing, which she reluctantly hung from the top of the cage, hoping against hope. Three days later, she came storming into the store. She slammed the door. She was hot. When the owner saw her, he immediately asked about the parrot. He died this afternoon. Died? Did he ever talk? Yes, she responded. He said just a few words before he fell to the bottom of the cage. Well, what did he say? Don't they sell any food down at that pet store? We live in a day of religious mirrors, ladders, and swings where the answer given to the deepest and most important issue, issues of our lives are empty promises sold with the guarantee of a quick fix and a bill of sale. Lots of trinkets, gimmicks, bells and whistles, but no food. No substance to sustain life. And let's be honest with ourselves. We have all tried more mirrors and ladders and swings to find happiness than we would like to admit. There are so many things which have fooled us. We can be so easily distracted by things around us, and even in the church, we become distracted by mirrors and ladders and swings to make us happy, yet not transformed. The first letter of John speaks boldly and unashamedly about God's revelation in Jesus Christ. 1 John, like the gospel of the same name, begins with a prologue, giving glory to Jesus Christ. John is so excited about Jesus, the word of life, the eternal one, who was with God from the very beginning, yet it is the same Jesus who is the Christ, which we have heard and seen and even touched. In him, eternal life became so visible 
that both he and it are available to all. All of this is written so that we can stand in a position of real fellowship with God and with Jesus and with others that our joy might be complete. The joy starts with the very character of God to which John believes is the total essence of what Jesus preached when he was on earth in these three simple words. God is light. What could be simpler and purer than the image of light and the opposite of darkness? In Scripture, these images are used in many ways. Intellectually, light is truth, and darkness is ignorance or error. Morally, light is pure, and darkness is evil. God's revelation through the law and the prophets is described as light. Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. The coming of Jesus is God's revelation of light. In the Gospel of John, the first of the I am statements is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. To emphasize that God is light, John restates the same, but this time in the negative. In him there is no darkness. Think about that for a second. This cannot even be said about the brightest object in our sky. The sun. For even as bright as the sun is, there are regular occurring dark spots on the surface of the sun. Yet in Jesus, there is no darkness. John is writing all of this that our joy may be complete. The consequence of fellowship is the completion of joy. The essence of Christianity is joy. The aim of the gospel is to bring joy. That is why the gospel is good news. The ultimate note of the Christian message is joy. Joy is dependent upon a life which brings fellowship, which leads to joy. John makes it plain. If people are ever to find fellowship with one another and fellowship with God, and if they are ever to find true joy, they will find themselves nowhere else than in Jesus Christ. There is no one else. John's goal is that our joy may be complete. Yet look at the subject he immediately addresses as the greatest threat to joy. It is a word that we really don't like to look at seriously. I doubt even if the first readers of the letter were expecting to hear John jump right from this issue after such an uplifting start. The first major section is on sin. John starts to attack the philosophies of that day and teachers who claim they had the truth. These teachers were most likely these teachings were most likely coming from people whom were in the church that John is writing. Remember that this letter, first and foremost, is a letter to a church, written to a church and for a church. 
John treats three heirs, all of which are threatening the fellowship of this church. All of them are barriers to the gathering of the believers and experiencing complete joy. All deal with the issue of sin. First, in conduct. Second, in its origin. And lastly, in our nature. They are misconceptions of people who want fellowship with God on their terms. It's like saying that a starving parrot will talk if he only had the correct mirror, ladder, or swing. The first claim is to say we can have fellowship with God, yet at the same time we can live like we please, doing what we like. John calls this living in darkness. This was a claim based on a common belief of that time, which stated that the body was not only an envelope, for the spirit which could not be hurt. It appears that there were followers of Jesus who had adopted this belief and brought it into the church by saying that what the body does does not really matter, as Christ has saved my soul. How common is it for people today who claim they have fellowship with God and yet do not think it a necessity to examine their life in light of the cross? They continue to live by the standards of our culture, what for them that may ever be. If we make such a claim, in fact, John says we are liars, not only in our words we say, but also in what we do. And to be honest, it took me a while to figure out why John was so harsh with his language at this point. Because those are strong words. And it finally hit me. Such thoughts and behavior break the joy. And this joy is his passion. And he will not tolerate anything which breaks the joy. John now moves to a second error, even more dangerous than the first. The first claim appeared to admit there was sin, while denying it had any effect on a person's relationship to God. Now the very fact of sin is denied. They argue that they did not need cleansing from sin because they had no sin from which to be cleansed. There's nothing else that we need to do than, than get rid of the notion that we have done something wrong. There is this belief that we really can save ourselves if we are good enough and we try hard enough. The key to salvation, to use the analogy of the poor parrot, is to find the correct mirror, the correct ladder, or the correct swing, and life will be just fine. Such an answer as the only solution is to deny our very nature. So dangerous that John says to do so proves that there is no truth in us. And once again, it breaks the joy. We cannot have joy if we don't find the need to be in the light. The third and final falsehood that John exposes is the most serious of them all. We may conclude in theory that sin would break our fellowship with God if in fact we did sin. And that sin does exist in our nature, and yet still deny we have indeed sinned, and thus put ourselves out of fellowship with God. I really don't think I have to argue very hard to prove that we live in a day in which we don't admit our own sins to ourselves or to one another. Where every action of the individual is judged correct by the standards that it is not hurting anyone else if that were truly possible. 
And Christians have added to this confusion throughout the years, either by implying that they are too good for others, which denies the truth that Christians are only good because of Jesus Christ. And forget that by the grace of God, we have nothing to boast. Or the opposite error, and more prevalent today, is in our desire to include and accept and make others feel good, we offer what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requirement of repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Cheap grace requires truth, replaces truth with tolerance, lowering the bar so low that everyone can walk over it. Cheap grace is the idea that grace did it for me, so I need to do nothing. Cheap grace breaks the joy. What then is the answer to the joy being broken? It is one of the great and simple paradoxes of the Christian life. If we do confess and admit we are sinners, the truth is in the resolution to the problem. It is to confess and acknowledge before God that we're all sinners. Not by nature, not only by nature, but by practice. And not pretending otherwise. As we do so, once again, the promise is given and we will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. We cannot make ourselves out to be pure no matter how hard we try or how good we really think we are. But as we humble ourselves before God, He makes us pure. He makes us whole. He makes us good. Forgiveness and cleansing are conditional upon confession as we bring them into the light of God. He brings the joy. We can fool ourselves in many ways. For it is not in our nature to admit we are wrong, or even we need help. And we live in a world that continually says that we can find happiness by finding the right mirror to look at, the correct ladder to climb, or a better swing to ride. It is very dangerous to rely on mirrors, ladders, and swings to make us feel good as they can mask our very need for God and the grace that is offered in Jesus Christ. And they can make us think that we do not have to come before a holy God. John is telling us that we are only complete when each and every one of us admit that we are sinners and we are made whole by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are in fellowship with God, our Creator, who is holy. Jesus Christ is the only one who can make us pure and holy. Diedrich Bonhoeffer also wrote about the opposite of cheap grace, costly grace, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which we must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
It is costly because it costs us our life. It is grace because this gives us true life. Costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. And that, what has cost God so much, cannot be cheap for us. It is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace makes our joy complete. It's truly ironic, isn't it, when we are at our weakest, relying solely on the grace, the costly and amazing grace of God, it is then and only then that we are made whole and our joy is complete. Joy is not happiness because happiness depends on what happens. There are elements in our circumstances we cannot help. Joy is independent of all of them. Joy is the inward singing that cannot be silenced by outward negative circumstances. Joy says, the King of Kings lives in my heart. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your unbelievable pursuit of us that you seek to have us come and to be whole and to be joyful people for you. Wherever we may be, wherever we may find ourselves, whatever circumstances are in our lives, we know that you are with us. In Christ's name, amen.